from 90.3 RLC WPPH FM Scataway. It's the core news for the week of Monday, April 4th. This week on the core news, we've got the WikiLeak of the week, some local news, a political update, the eco and environmental news about that Delaware River Basin Commission we've been hearing so much about. We'll talk to Mary DeDuke, Editor-in-Chief of the Daily Targum, about what's been going on around Rutgers. Here's some new music news. Get a little comics and gaming. Find out what's happening at the Rutgers Zone this week. And, of course, get the entertainment news from the Sherman Tank. But first, here's Amy Bronstein with the war update on Iraq and Afghanistan. In Iraq on Tuesday, March 29th, Dozens were killed in the northern city of Tikrit when gunmen disguised as soldiers of the Iraqi army seized the provincial building and a hostage situation ended in bloodshed. The Iraqi security forces eventually stormed the building in a heavily armed confrontation which left all the occupants of the seized office dead. Among the dead was Sabah al-Bazi, a 30-year-old Reuters freelance photographer. In Afghanistan on Tuesday, March 29th, Norula Delawari, an aide to President Hamid Karzai, was arrested on embezzlement charges and released by the president two hours after being taken into custody. The attorney general held a press conference to review the charges against the banking and private sector advisor, but said there had been a misunderstanding and that Delawari was only being questioned and not charged by the police. On April 1st, protests began in Afghanistan over a Quran burning by Florida Pastor Terry Jones. Jones had threatened to hold a Quran burning on the lawn of his Gainesville church in 2010, but had initially backed off the idea. The demonstrations turned violent when a crowd surged into the UN offices in Mazar al-Sharif, and eight international United Nations employees were killed, with Afghan police reporting that two had been decapitated. The death toll, as of Sunday, was 24 killed in the anti-Jones demonstrations. Pastor Terry Jones defended the Quran burning to the New York Times, saying that it was meant to stir the pot, though he refused to accept responsibility for the deaths catalyzed by his demonstration. In Pakistan on Sunday, April 3rd, two suicide bombers in their young teens targeted a Sufi shrine in the Punjab province, while a third attacker was arrested before he could detonate. At least 41 were killed as they gathered for a three-day festival. Sufism is a branch of Islam considered heretical by the Taliban. Their religious celebrations have been targeted in the past. I'm Amy Bronstein with a Core News War Update. This is MC Lars, and you're listening to The Core News. Did I say that right? And now, for the WikiLeak of the week. A leaked cable revealed Germany threatened to stop paying into a NATO trust fund over concerns with how the U.S. was handling the money. The American military had been charging a 15% handling fee on hundreds of millions of dollars raised to build the Afghan army and police forces. German ambassador to the U.S. military Ulrich Brandenburg raised concerns in 2010 over his country's most recent payment of 50 million euros and why other development projects had not gone ahead. The leaked diplomatic cable was asking authorities in Washington how to handle Ambassador Brandenburg. And cables leaked from the U.S. Embassy in New Delhi revealed requests from the Sri Lankan government for help convincing India to support contact groups to upset the ability of Tamil Tigers to fundraise and procure weapons. The Tigers are a secessionist movement which has fought for the formation of Tamil Alan, an independent state in the north and east of Sri Lanka. These contact groups were the invention of the U.S. government, and other cables reveal that the Sri Lankan government had moved militarily against the Tigers, while India was still working towards a political solution. I'm Amy Bronstein with your WikiLeak of the Week. 
This is The Core News on 90.3 The Core, streaming and podcasting at thecore.fm. Here's Sarah Morrison with this week's local news updates. The heat's not just for the Jersey Shore anymore. Rutgers University is taking a bad rap for paying Snooki, the pint-sized star of the MTV reality show series Jersey Shore, $32,000 for her appearance last Thursday. Snooki, whose real name is Nicole Polizzi, costs $2,000 more than award-winning author Toni Morrison is expected to receive at university commencement in May. The university is taking heat as the story hits major news outlets. Students expressed disappointment that in tough financial times, money was spent on her and other university treasures, such as decades-old tradition to break clay pipes at commencement, were cut. In a statement released today, university officials reassured the public that no state tuition or donor funds were used towards the comedy program. An unnamed source close to the state redistricting committee says that if the newest plan introduced by state Democrats is passed, It will split Middlesex County State Senators Barbara Buono and Joseph Vitale, forcing them both into primaries in their new districts. The plan is being weighed against a Republican plan, both of which were drawn up by a committee of five Democrats, five Republicans, and one state-appointed independent, Alan Rosenthal. The Democrat plan will also remove the town of Patterson from the town of Hawthorne, which is a Democratic stronghold. Rosenthal will cast the tie-breaking vote on the redistricting plan that he feels is most fair tomorrow. Governor Christie is yet another governor who is exploring the idea to merge the University of Medicine and Dentistry of New Jersey with Rutgers. In an announcement made today, Christie created a five-person committee to explore the possibility of merging the two universities. Christie's predecessor, John Corzine, tried to merge the two programs during his term, but to no avail. The changes, originally recommended by former Governor Tom Keene, would consider several options that may merge separate aspects of UNDNJ with Rutgers. The committee's observations are due to the governor by September 1st. Police are investigating an early morning stabbing that took place in New Brunswick that may have caused one fatality. Police have not confirmed whether or not there was a death at the stabbing, which occurred near Remsen Avenue and Siemens Street. A victim was transported to Robert Wood Johnson University Hospital. Anyone with information is urged to contact police. The Kin Buck Landfill in Edison will receive a small portion of $11.5 million federal settlement from General Motors Corporation. The landfill was contaminated by the former auto giant, along with sites in Newark and in Sayreville, but the three sites will receive only $70,000 of the funds towards their cleanup efforts. This is the ninth settlement paid to Kim Buck in order to help fund its cleanup efforts. Metuchen is swearing in its first new police chief in a decade today. Captain Robert Rettenberg, a 22-year veteran of the department, has been captain there for 12 years. The previous chief, James Keane, is retiring after 12 years in the police chief position. Last but not least, it was all for the kids over the weekend. Rutgers University Dance Marathon, an annual 32-hour-long dance-a-thon, brought in nearly $380,000 for the Embrace Kids Foundation, which supports children with cancer, leukemia, and other blood disorders. The event, traditionally run by fraternities and sororities at Rutgers, had 410 dancers standing on their feet the whole time. The annual event raised more money than last year, but had less dancers, but more new teams than in years past. We have breaking news tonight here at 90.3 The Core. We are sorry to say that former New Jersey Representative John Adler has died after complications from heart surgery. Adler hailed from Haddonfield and started his political career in the late 1980s, where he served on the Cherry Hill Township Council after graduating Harvard with his Juris Doctor. He served in the New Jersey State Senate from 1992 until he was elected to the House of Representatives in 2008. 
In the state Senate, Adler co-sponsored anti-smoking legislation and was the force behind legislation that would strip public officials of pension rights if they were convicted of corruption. Adler served one term in the House of Representatives from the 3rd District, which is made up of parts of Burlington, Ocean, and Camden Counties. He was the first Democrat to represent the district since the early 19th century and lost to Republican John Runyon in November 2010. After his defeat, Adler joined Greenberg Traurig to practice law. Adler had recently undergone emergency heart surgery after contracting staph bacterial endocarditis. He was 51 years old. This is The Core News on 90.3 The Core, streaming and podcasting at thecore.fm. You just heard Sarah Morrison with this week's local news. And now it's time to turn to politics. Here's Yashwanth Manjanath. Thanks for that introduction, Mindy. Okay. My first story of the night is about how when it comes to criminal prosecution, there is simply a different set of rules for Wall Street. Jeffrey Stearns is a 29-year-old concrete company owner. Stearns was recently arrested in front of his family and spent two nights in jail for not paying $4,024.88 owed to a unit of AIG on a loan for his pickup truck. He was only released after agreeing to pay $1,500 to the loan company. Interestingly enough, $4,024.88 is just about how much money AIG owes to every single American taxpayer for the $122.8 billion bailout they received and have yet to pay back. And yet no one is trying to arrest the top executives at AIG. Of course, this isn't even the most egregious recent example of Wall Street benefiting from a different set of rules. Angela Mazzillo allegedly made over $600 million engaging in insider trading and mortgage fraud leading up to the 2008 financial collapse as the CEO of Countrywide. The SEC even had emails and other documents which showed him discussing the company's lending practices and describing some of its loans as, quote, toxic and poison. Of course, as Mozilla was privately criticizing these loans, publicly the company still sold them to unsuspecting investors. Sounds like a pretty clear case of fraud, doesn't it? But despite the overwhelming evidence against him, federal prosecutors in Los Angeles dropped their criminal investigation of him last month. Mozilla's only punishment was a $67.5 million settlement with the SEC, $45 million of which was paid for by Countrywide and Bank of America, who now owns Countrywide. But the best part was the reaction of Robert Kazami, the director of the SEC's enforcement division. He said, quote, Mozilla's record penalty is the fitting outcome for a corporate executive who deliberately disregarded his duties to investi- investors by concealing what he saw from inside the executive suite, a looming disaster in which Countrywide was buckling under the weight of increasing risky mortgage underwriting, mounting defaults and delinquencies, and a deteriorating business model. The man did a victory lap. Can you imagine if a bank robber had stolen $600 million from Bank of America in New York City and the NYPD chief of police came out and acted like getting 10% of the money back was a, quote, fitting outcome? Now, Charlie Engel, one of Mozilla's subprime borrowers, wasn't so lucky. Engel is currently serving a 21-month sentence for lying on two, quote, liar loans, something millions of Americans did prior to the financial meltdown. The way federal prosecutors nailed Engel was by sending an attractive undercover female agent by the name of Ellen Burroughs to seduce him while wearing a wire. Unfortunately for Engel, Burroughs managed to persuade him to incriminate himself. When asked why they went to so much trouble to prosecute arguably the smallest of small fries, Neil McBride, the U.S. attorney whose office prosecuted the case, 
issued a statement saying, quote, the Justice Department has made prosecuting financial crimes, including mortgage fraud, a high priority. No reports yet on whether he was able to say that with a straight face. But the real kicker is that when Engel is finally released from prison, he's going to have to pay $262,500 in restitution to the owner of his mortgages, Countrywide, now owned by Bank of America. That ought to give Angela Mazzillo a good laugh at the country club. Whoever said crime doesn't pay clearly never worked as a top executive on Wall Street. Now, other news involving grossly inequitable criminal justice in this country is the story of John Thompson. Thompson was convicted of murder in New Orleans in 1985 and sentenced to death. A few weeks before his scheduled execution in 1999, a defense investigator for Thompson learned that Jerry Deegan, a prosecutor on the Thompson case, had confessed on his cancer-stricken deathbed to having withheld crime lab results from the defense, as well as removing a blood sample from the evidence room. The blood sample showed that the killer's blood type was type B blood, while Thompson's blood type was type O. Thompson's defense also learned that the New Orleans District Attorney's Office, led by Harry Connick Sr., yeah, that's the singer and Will and Grace guest star's father, had also failed to disclose the fact that Thompson was implicated in the murder by a person who received money from the victim's family to testify against him, and that an eyewitness identification did not match Thompson. Based on the new evidence, Thompson's conviction was overturned on appeal, and on retrial, a jury found Thompson innocent in only 35 minutes. In 1963, in Brady v. Maryland, the Supreme Court held that prosecutors must turn over to the defense any evidence that would tend to prove a defendant's innocence. Failure to do so is a violation of the defendant's constitutional rights, but that didn't stop the four prosecutors in Thompson's case from keeping exculpatory evidence for 20 years. If it weren't for Thompson's investigators, he would have been executed for a murder that he didn't commit. With the Brady case in mind, Thompson rightfully sued Harry Connick Sr. for failing to train his prosecutors about their legal obligation to turn over exculpatory evidence to the defense. A jury awarded Thompson $14 million for the civil rights violation, $1 million for every year he spent wrongfully incarcerated on death row. The district court judge added another $1 million in attorney's fees, and the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals upheld the verdict. But last week, writing on behalf of the five conservatives on the Supreme Court, Clarence Thomas threw out the verdict and said Thompson deserves nothing. His legal reasoning was that the district attorney cannot be held responsible for a Brady violation based on, a single, on the actions of a single lone prosecutor. He further argued that Thompson did not present sufficient evidence to back up his claim that there was a pattern of Brady violations at Connick's office. Writing for the minority in a blistering dissent was Ru- Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who pointed out that counting the prosecutor who confessed in removing evidence from the case on his deathbed, there were five prosecutors involved in wrongfully convicting Thompson. Furthermore, in the 10 years preceding Thompson's trial, Louisiana courts had overturned four convictions because of Brady violations by prosecutors in Connick's office. Clarence Thomas acknowledged that detail in his majority, but chose to ignore it and argued that it still did not establish a pattern of Brady violations. Apparently, Thomas was not going to let logic or facts get in the way of his legal opinion. Long story short, a bunch of white prosecutors got together to send an innocent black man to death row, and according to the conservatives on the Supreme Court, there should be no consequences for the prosecutors involved and no justice for the innocent man who was almost murdered. Finally, today is the anniversary of the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. He died 43 years ago today, giving a speech in defense of collective bargaining rights for sanitation workers. 
Ironically enough, we are still fighting today to preserve collective bargaining rights for laborers. I wonder what he'd have to say about the recent slew of anti-labor legislation making its way through the country, let alone the injustice delivered to, Tom, to John Thompson last week. With the national political news and commentary, I'm Yashwant Munjana. This is The Core News on 90.3 The Core, streaming and podcasting at thecore.fm. When we come back, you'll hear from Nana with the Eco and Environmental News. Hey, just calling to check up on you. You were crazy last night. It's all over Facebook. Wait, what? What are you talking about? What? Don't you remember? We went to the club, then to the bars. Wait, all this is on Facebook? Oh, no. Yeah, you were going shot for shot with that one guy. Wait, how much did you have last night anyway? I don't know. I can't even remember. This is so embarrassing. Well, at least you know how much fun you had now. Yeah, right. Binge drinking doesn't have to be the only kind of drinking. Two out of three Rutgers students stop at three drinks or fewer, and one in five don't even drink at all. This message is brought to you by the Rutgers Are You Sure campaign and 90.3 The Core. This is The Core News on 90.3 The Core, streaming and podcasting at thecore.fm. And here I am, Nana, with your 90.3 The Core Eco and Environmental News Update April 15th is looming closer and closer, and you know it's not just tax day. You need to concern yourself about April 15th being the last day, 5 p.m., the deadline for you to weigh in your concerns about hydraulic fracturing in the Delaware River Basin. Fracking is the process of looking for natural gas in shale. The process of getting that natural gas is controversial by nature because the drilling process uses millions of gallons of water, a recipe of chemicals yet to be revealed by the gas companies, and sand to pump into the shale bed to make fractures in the shale to extract the natural gas. Concerns over the watershed have DRBC, which is the Delaware River Basin Commission, between the ire of landowners wanting to help economic development in their little piece of heaven and the concerns of those who see this process as a danger to our environment and drinking water. 15 million people in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and even New York use the water in the Delaware River, and an area of that river north of Trenton is a special pristine area receiving extra federal protection. Christopher Crockett is in charge of planning for Philadelphia's water department. He stated, we want to make sure we have the science before the policy. John Plonsky is the Assistant New Jersey Commissioner for Water Resources in New Jersey, right here. He stated, New Jersey has always taken the position that our primary responsibility is to protect the integrity of the Delaware River. Now go voice your concern. Head over to www.nj.gov drbc. April 15th is the deadline, baby. I want the Delaware River Basin Commission to hear your voice. And now we're heading to North Jersey, to our beautiful Highlands area. It's 1,343 square miles in northwest New Jersey. It has environmental importance to all of us here in New Jersey, noted for its scenic beauty and the environmental significance. The Highlands provides around 379 million gallons of water a day and is a big source of drinking water for over 5 million people here in New Jersey. 
Now, straight from the U.S. Forest Service, the Highlands Conservation Act signed by President Bush in November of 2004 is designed to assist Connecticut, New Jersey, New York, and Pennsylvania in conserving land and natural resources in the Highlands region through federal assistance for land conservation projects in which a state entity acquires land or an interest in land from a willing seller to permanently protect resources of high conservation value. Now we'll head back to 2011 and our governor, he was at a town meeting in March in Hapakong. The governor said the 2004 act was based on a lie because it hasn't provided financial remuneration to landowners whose land has lost some value because of restrictions on developing. And then the governor told the town hall people, if you give me a Republican legislature in November, you're not going to believe what's going to happen. To learn more about the Highlands Water Protection and Planning Commission, head over to their website, highlands.state.nj.us. Just so you know, thanks for listening to the 90.3 The Core, and that wraps it up for the Eco-Environmental News. You're listening to The Core News on 90.3 The Core, streaming and podcasting at thecore.fm. The Core News will be back in just a minute when you will hear Mary D. Duke of the Daily Targum discuss what's been going on around Rutgers this week. Hey, dude. I'm pretty glad he got us all together to burn off some steam from exams. My life's just been all-nighters this week. I'm so ready to chill out. Yeah, no problem. My house is always open for parties as long as people follow house rules. Bring a snack, bring a game, but no drinks so we can just relax without all that drama. <laughs> yeah, no one have a problem with that, unless they're afraid of partying with that alcohol or something. Yo, bro, my brother Bacardi! Don't be that guy. It takes confidence to relax without having to drink. But when you have friends who get it, they still know how to have fun. This message is brought to you by the Rutgers Are You Sure campaign and 90.3 The Core. This is The Core News on 90.3 The Core, streaming and podcasting at thecore.fm. And now it's time to find out what is going on around Rutgers. Here to speak with us is Mary DeDuke. She is the editor-in-chief of Rutgers' own The Daily Targum. Hi, Mary. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm all right. So things that have been happening around Rutgers and New Jersey... The governor has just declared that some money will be spent on transportation issues around the state. What's going on with that? Right. Um, well, Governor Chris Christie and his administration uh, announced their proposal for fiscal fiscal year 2012, the transportation capital program. So this wouldn't be in effect for this year. This would be from July 1st, 2012 for that year, for that fiscal year. Basically, they announced that for Middlesex County, it would receive $175 million for 20 transportation projects. And what are some of the projects that this will go to? Basically, it's to improve roads and bridges around here. It's not really for new infrastructure because those are more costly. It's for fixing things that, we, that are broken now and hopefully things that can be fixed within a five-year plan. Some of those things around Rutgers are the Hose Lane Extension, 287, also some projects on Route 18. And infrastructure like roads and bridges around the state, that's something that's been neglected for quite some time. So, 
Yeah, I mean, it's important. And also, NJ Transit's going to get a lot of money from both the state and the federal government. Um, I think it's about $1.6 billion. And basically, they're going to also go through their railroad signaling, fixing bridges and whatnot again. And they're looking to fix their 1,400 buses. So that could be a nice change in a couple of years. Yes. As anyone at Rutgers knows, bus maintenance is very important. Yes. (laughs) So other things that are going on around the state, some municipalities are starting an anti-smoking initiative. Like, What is that and who is that actually going to affect? Okay, well, it's five, five cities in New Jersey. It is the five cities in New Jersey that are doing this are Persephone, Troy Hills, Patterson, Vineland, West Milford, and Woodbridge. And it's part of the mayor's wellness campaign, which is working to decrease health care costs and improve health care for its citizens just in the state and that's all the municipalities have pretty much signed on to that or a majority like more than 500 but the smoking initiative basically these five towns are competing to see if their municipal government workers uh, who can not smoke for the longest whoever signs up and when we ran the article last week it said that so far the program had about 20 participants and they're trying to you know break the habit or who can maintain that as long as possible which seems pretty important since New Jersey has very high property taxes, especially Middlesex County has among the highest property taxes in the state. And really the thing that drives property taxes up is schools. That's the main component. And then for the municipal part of the property taxes, it's things like health care and, and mm-hmm. pensions. Mm-hmm. So if they, I guess anything they can do to lower health care costs will you know, help residents. Yeah, it's very important. And it's sort of breaking a disgusting habit that a lot of Americans have today, which is important. And something going on around Rutgers. So someone is building a solar house? Yes, students are involved with a joint project with NJIT to build a solar house for a a solar decathlon competition. The reason why we are paired up with NJIT is, well, more students involved and also the, um, the stipulations of the competition say that the school... It's, if it's a participate, it has to have an architecture program, and NJIT does. So that's why we are uh, working with NJIT. And more than 250 students have been involved with the project, so that's great. And basically what the project is doing is these students are building a energy-efficient house that produces no waste, basically runs on its own. They are constructing it, designing it, planning it out, constructing it, and then... They are deconstructing it and bringing it down to D.C. for competition. Um, It's competing against 20 other schools around the nation. And the host of the competition is the U.S. Department of Energy. And do you know when the competition will be held? They are building the house in Newark in June. And then they are deconstructing it and bringing it to D.C. in August. So I guess we'll know next fall how they did. Yes. Um, Apparently, though, this is the only house that is using concrete. Hmm. to build it and to because concrete can hold the heat during the day and then release it during the night and it's using solar panels for the energy and it has its own water recycling program so hopefully they do a good job yeah, it'll be interesting to see what from this competition will actually be incorporated in the future yeah definitely and also here at rutgers the douglas governing council has passed a resolution recently regarding higher education they passed a resolution spring the Save the Education campaign, which is part of this whole student initiative that is happening this semester. Students from the public universities in the state have joined together. They formed the New Jersey, New Jersey United Students. 
and basically they are fighting against the tuition cuts and they want to reinstate tuition caps. So that would be limits on how much tuition could be raised in any given year? Right. For example, if it, I think last year was 4%, so the university could not increase tuition more than 4%. Which would be nice because over the last decade, there have been a number of higher tuition increases. I think it was an 8% increase twice in a row a few years ago. It's very possible. Usually it's, a, it's around 5 It's between 4 and 8, 8%, I believe. So it's very interesting, though, because several administrators, like President McCormick, he actually supports um, not having tuition caps because it actually could potentially reduce the amount that tuition is increased or the percentage because then the university has to justify the increase. So it kind of puts down the university to keep it low. So it's interesting. So it could work out more for the students. But then on the other hand, having a cap guarantees that, you know, universities don't go sort of above and beyond to increase tuition. Well, what would what would be the downside of having the cap to students? The downside could be that, say the university only needs to, in a year, increase tuition maybe 1%. This is just a hypothetical situation, yet the cap is 6%. The university might feel the need to automatically increase 6% because they don't know what the cap is going to be next year or what their budget from the state is going to be, and they need to protect themselves. So they might be driven to, say, build up a surplus in right. case they need more money in the future because if they need it, they won't be able to. Right. Which seems kind of similar to the way budgets work for for groups and departments at Rutgers. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, this is the way it works in many places where a department gets a certain amount of money. And if they don't spend all that money, then the next year they're budgeted for less. Right. So a lot of departments will spend all that money no matter what because they know even if they don't need it this year, they might need it next year right. and they won't be able to get it even if it's something important and they ask for it. Right. So it's a, it's a tricky situation, but um, we'll see what happens and we'll see what these students do because I think one of, the, one of the most interesting things is how it's uniting all these schools. 10 out of 12 campuses are going to be advocating on April 13th for the Day of Action you know, and on this campus at Voorhees Mall to say, you know, we want our tuition lowered, we want public education saved. So explain what's going to happen on the Day of Action. Basically, it's sort of a precursor to Tent State. Um, Tent State happens here every year. It's when people live literally in tents on Voorhees Hall, and they're advocating for public higher education. And what this is doing, though, it's sort of just going to be a day-long protest. And hopefully, if it's done, the theory is that if students from around the, from around the state do it on their individual campuses, it's going to make a stronger message to those in Trenton, as opposed to just everyone going to Trenton, because think about it realistically not all students can go to Trenton but all students can theoretically go to their campus and show their support so they've been having little mini events like the tuition monologues which is when they were explaining how the tuition cuts are affecting them personally and so it's it's going to be interesting and that event is going to consist of a walkout which will probably be around 2 or 2 30 so around that time students will walk to Voorhees Mall And I think until about five, Mm -hmm. people will be at the mall talking and demonstrating. And and we'll find out more about that next week. You can try checking Facebook if you're looking for details, but we will will look into that for next week. And of course, things going on around Rutgers. Sadly, we cannot escape the whole snooky, contentious situation, the snooky controversy. So... The Jersey Shore reality show star Snooki came to Rutgers, right? And she was actually she did 
two shows. She's like she spoke with a comedian. It was a Rupa event, and it was free. Students just had to get a wristband. And here it was held here in the Livingston Student Center. So we were here when people were lining up for wristbands, and the line went all the way from College Hall up the middle of the Livingston Student Center, through the side entrance, and outside and along the building. This is people lining up for Snooky. <laughs> And then later it turned out that Snooki was paid $32,000 for her visit to Rutgers, whereas Toni Morrison, the esteemed poet laureate, was paid $30,000, $2,000 less to be the commencement speaker at this year's inaugural university-wide commencement at the stadium. So there's been a lot of controversy about this. What have people been saying about it, and how does that relate to what actually is happening at Rutgers? Well, a lot of people particularly alumni who don't like the way the university is being portrayed, they feel, you know, oh my God, how can we pay someone who won the Nobel Prize less than someone who's been on a reality show? Not even, you know, a good reality show, like she's doing good things. She's literally just going out and partying every night and that's fine. That's her decision. But so a lot of alumni especially aren't too pleased with this and a lot of New Jersey residents because they feel that it sort of reinforces the Jersey Shore stereotype that that show that show sort of started. But it's interesting because Toni Morrison was paid by PepsiCo, who holds the contract for all the vending machines on the university. They're our sponsors, so they're the ones who are paying for Toni Morrison. And Rupa is paying or paid for Snooki, and that money came directly from student fees. It was sort of a predetermined amount, and they just chose to spend you know, their pool of money, their, that part, for Snooki. So the source of funding they are different. It's not, you know, President McCormick and the administrators paying for this. It, it's completely different. So on the one hand, neither of these things is coming directly from tuition. I mean, granted, you can't no. pay your tuition and not pay your student fees. Right. You've still got to pay them. But student fees are, I believe they're determined by RUSA. RUSA determines how right. much money RUPA is mm-hmm. going to get, and they revisit that every four years or so. Mm-hmm. And the money that goes to Rupa, it can't be spent, like, they can't spend it on other things. They can't decide they're going to, you know, do very few programs and then just, you know, donate the rest of that money to scholarships or academic programs. It's It's got to be used for right. Rupa events. And Rupa events, they're, they're not all educational. They, they can be fun and entertaining. Sure, we are at school, but, you know, students do want to enjoy their time here. And maybe that money could have been put towards Rutgers Fest or toward another concert, but the students chose Snooky, not just Rupa. Rupa says, they said in a statement that was released Friday that 2,000 students wanted Snooky to come here. So they did put out a survey. Sure, that's a small amount of students, but there was some interest and she had two sold out shows. So, I mean, maybe that's saying yeah. something. And considering the $32,000 fee, so she did, she put on two shows, one right after the other, and also part of that money, she appeared with a comedian, who I think was kind of, you know, moderating right. the Snooky event, so the comedian is paid out of that, and her agent, so it's not entirely comparable in terms of events that people are being paid for, mm-hmm. but I guess part of the argument that people can make about this is, should Rutgers, any part of Rutgers, be paying for something that is so very un, you know, uncollegiate in terms right. of, you know, higher education and being intellectual. But on the other hand, part of the reason that we have the programming association is so that students can do things that are fun, to blow off some steam, to have things to do that are 
non-academic that are not just, you know, going somewhere and getting drunk. So you can make a case for it either way. I guess people are concerned, you know, why do Rutgers students, even if this is what they wanted, why do Rutgers students want someone like that to come here? Maybe that's just a sign of the times, you know. The show is extremely popular. A lot of people watch Jersey Shore not because they want to be these people, but to sort of poke fun of them and, you know, to look at their lives and it's an amusing spectacle. It is. And now that it has become so big, it's almost a lot of people feel if they don't watch it, they're left out almost. Right. Like they're missing out on part right. of the, the cultural zeitgeist. Right. So, you know, maybe these people wanted Snooki to come here because they just wanted to see her and see if she was really like this in person. I would have been intrigued. I mean, I didn't go and I probably I might not have gone, but I think it would have been interesting. Yeah, so at least, like at the very least, Snooki's visit to Rutgers has prompted some discussion. Yeah, it, it's... Which is probably more than most group of events do, so... This is true. Who knows? This is true. Maybe Snooki has something. You're listening to The Core News on 90.3 The Core, streaming and podcasting at thecore.fm. We've been talking about things going on around Rutgers with Mary DeDuke. She is the editor-in-chief of the Daily Targum. And that is online at www.dailytargum.com. The Core News will be back right after this. Okay, ready? One, two, three. Pants on the ground, pants on the ground. Looking like a fool with your pants on the ground. With the gold in your mouth. Hat turned sideways, pants hit the ground. Want to be a cool cat? Don't get caught with your pants on the ground. And listen to 90.3 on your radio dial or stream us online at thecore.fm. While you're there, check out our schedule and events calendar. You can even call us up for a request, 732-445-9300. Or hit us up on AIM, Core Requests. And get your pants off the ground. This is The Core News on 90.3 The Core, streaming and podcasting at thecore.fm. Now it's time to find out what is happening in the world of music. Here's Justin Matrick. LCD Sound System played their last ever show this past Saturday at Madison Square Garden. The three-hour concert included guests like Arcade Fire and Reggie Watts. Along with a large set list including some of their classic songs, the band also covered bands like 10CC, Daft Punk, Harry Nelson, and Yes. Flaming Lips frontman Wayne Cohen has revealed that the band is looking to adapt their classic album Yoshimi Battles the Pink Robots into a stage musical. Right now the musical is in the early stages of production, but is looking to be directed by Des McEnough, who also directed the play Jersey Boys. A tentative debut for the show has been pinned at some time late next year. There has been a lot of buzz in the past year for New York indie band Cults. That buzz will culminate on June 7th when they release their debut album. The self-titled album will have 11 tracks. And now here are your 90.3 The Core charts for the week of March 29th. At number 10 was Gil Scott Heron and Jamie XX with We're New Here. Number 9 was the self-titled album by Yuck. Number 8 was Telekinesis with 12 Desperate Straight Lines. Number 7 was Likey Lee with Wounded Rhymes. 6 was Radiohead's The King of Limbs. 5 was The People's Key by Bright Eyes. 4 was The Head and the Heart with their self-titled album. Three was the single Will Do by TV on the Radio. Number two was The Strokes with Angles. And number one was Smith Westerns with Diet Blonde. This has been Justin Magic with your 90.3 The Core Music News. This is Nerdpocalypse with DJ Calamari, bringing you the latest in comic and video gaming news. 
WonderCon 2011 took place this past weekend, unveiling new information about the future of your favorite comics, whether they are DC, Marvel, or a lesser-known third party. Both Marvel and DC pulled out all the stops at WonderCon for the movies coming out this summer. DC unveiled new footage of the Green Lantern film, which is set to be released June 17th, starring Ryan Reynolds. The footage provides further insight into how Ryan Reynolds' character, Hal Jordan, becomes the Green Lantern, along with previously unseen scenes of Sinestro, Jordan's mentor and future enemy. Marvel revealed some new movie posters for the Thor film set to be released next month, but had no new footage of the movie itself. Instead, they unveiled a new game set to be released this fall titled Spider-Man Edge of Time. The game will chronicle the quest of classic Spider-Man teaming up with Spider-Man 2099 to prevent the death of Peter Parker. While the concept of a superhero from two different time periods trying to save his own alter ego is very confusing, new information is bound to come out. Finally, it has been leaked that a new Burnout game is in development by EA. The game, which is rumored to be called Burnout Crash, is set to be released on both the Xbox 360 and PlayStation 3. Unfortunately, no new details about the game have been revealed at the current time. This has been Nerpocalypse of Digicalamari. Stay tuned for some more great core radio. You're listening to The Core News on 90.3 The Core, streaming and podcasting at thecore.fm. This is the Sherman Tank with another entertainment news update. There isn't quite so much going on in the world of film right now as award seasons just recently come to a close and we're still waiting for the summer season with all of its hopeful blockbusters and comic book adaptations to begin. So this week's segment's going to take the form of a series of quick blurbs as opposed to a couple of focus stories. So let's begin, shall we? By this point, everyone's aware of what movies are coming out this summer and are picking out the ones that are most excited for. But what about the future? What can we expect years down the road? The answer is, of course, more of the same. Sequels, prequels, adaptations, remakes, and reimaginings. Examples, you ask? Well, for one, MGM just announced that they're planning on producing a remake of the horror movie Child's Play. I honestly forgot that it was the name of the movie and pretty much just thought of it as the Chucky movie. But yeah, that's something that's happening, I guess. How about a remake of Total Recall starring Colin Farrell? That's also a thing that's happening. Surely we can also expect to see some of those six Kung Fu Panda sequels that DreamWorks signed up for over the next few years, along with the entire new trilogy of Pirates of the Caribbean movies that Disney announced. And for some strange reason, there are also about 20 movies related to either The Wizard of Oz or Peter Pan, either in the works or in the planning stages. I have absolutely no idea why. And it would be ignorant for me to forget about the movie adaptations of board games such as Battleship, Monopoly, and Scrabble. Oh, I'm just kidding. There's no Scrabble movie coming out. There totally are Battleship and Monopoly movies coming out, though. I wasn't kidding about those. Heck, maybe there is a Scrabble movie coming out and just hasn't been announced yet. You'd never know. So yes, while it seems that Hollywood's creative well has run a little dry recently, not all sequels and adaptations are bad ideas. As best as anybody can tell, a new Star Trek movie is on its way, even though J.J. Abrams has not yet officially signed on as director. Another potential Abrams-related project is Cloverfield 2, which has just been hinted at by Matt Reeves, who directed the first movie. No work has yet been done on it, but Reeves claims that ideas have been thrown around and that it will definitely happen in the future when everybody has time. I adore Cloverfield, so I'm very excited for any possible sequels, especially because Abrams and crew are among the best minds working in the industry today, and they're sure to keep things fresh. Another project that we've been assured is on the way is the 24 movie, adapted from the deceased television show. Kiefer Sutherland, the star of the show and also one of the producers, has been vehement in his guarantees that a movie version will eventually be made. While later seasons got a little stale and more than a little bit silly, I have faith that Jack Bauer is a cool enough character and the writers are talented enough to give us one more two-hour chunk of solid 24 action. Of course, I cannot not mention Peter Jackson's film adaptation of The Hobbit, which has finally gone into productions after a year which saw studio bankruptcy, rights disputes, director Guillermo del Toro leaving the project, new director Peter Jackson getting ill, actors' union protests, and alleged Hobbit racism. 
Sets have finally gone up, actors and crew have finally reported, and cameras will soon begin to roll if they haven't already. Finally. Let's see, what else can we talk about? How about Arnold Schwarzenegger, who's no longer governor of California and is looking to get back into acting? He'll have his choice of scripts to be sure, but first he's expressed interest in working on a television series in an unspecified capacity. Now there's a rumor that the show will be an animated children's show produced by a company that specializes in edutainment programming. I'm hoping for an animated Terminator show for children discussing the dangers of over-reliance on technology. Probably won't happen, but I can hope. We'll all find out about this mystery show when it's announced on April 4th. Speaking of cartoons, did you know that Mickey Mouse has never been the subject of a feature film before? Sure, he's popped up in a Goofy movie and Who Framed Roger Rabbit and probably a few other movies over the years, but there's never been a Mickey Mouse movie. I had no idea. That all might change in the future, though, as Disney animator slash writer slash director slash producer Bernie Mattinson has come up with a script for a feature starring all the classic Disney characters. If it gets greenlighted and put into production, this will clearly become one of the more anticipated and discussed projects of the next few years. Before we wrap the show up, let me just mention a few relevant pieces of interesting statistical stuff. Terrence Malick's Tree of Life, which is far and away my most anticipated movie of the year and beyond, has had a release date for a while now, May 27th. Now it's been announced that the movie will play at the Cannes Film Festival, which will run this year from May 11th to the 22nd. I can't wait to hear what people think of it. Uh, Seriously, go to YouTube and watch the trailer right now. It will change your life. That's The Tree of Life, Terrence Malick. Look forward to it. Another release date, April 1st. That's the release date for the censored version of 2011 Best Picture winner, The King's Speech. The plan is to replace all instances of the F-word with the S-word instead. I wish I was kidding. So if you hadn't gotten around to seeing the movie yet, make sure you see it before April 1st. Wait. Oh, it's too late. I'm sorry. Uh, I mean, unless you don't mind watching movies that have given up the artistic integrity for economic reasons, then there's no problem. Here's a cool little bit of Wikipedia trivia. There's a new record holder for the world's longest movie. The movie, called Modern Times Forever, is 10 days long, or 14,400 minutes long if you prefer. It's being projected outside of the Stora Enzo building in Finland, and depicts how the building will change over the course of thousands of years at the hands of people in nature. Sounds interesting, but I think I'll wait for the extended director's cut on Blu-ray. Of course, we cannot end the segment today without mentioning how film legend and acting great Dame Elizabeth Taylor died of heart failure on Wednesday, March 23rd. The two-time Oscar winner had battled poor health for the last decade of her life. She'll be most remembered for starring in the only Smell-O-Vision movie ever made along with Peter Lorre and the guy who played Marcus Brody in Indiana Jones. Just kidding. She'll be remembered most for a string of three Oscar-nominated performances in three consecutive movies in the late 1950s, including Cat on Hot Tin Roof and her two Oscar-winning performances in Butterfield 8 and Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, as well as for her otherworldly classic Hollywood Beauty and for her story-charitable efforts in battling HIV-AIDS. This has been The Sherman Tank. Hi, this is Sean Bones, and we're listening to the news on 90.3 The Core. Hi, this is Lisa from the Rocker Zone, and here are your events for the week of Monday, April 4th. On Monday, come in at 7 p.m. to watch the Twins at the Yankees. On Tuesday, April 5th, to come watch the NCAA Women's Basketball Championship at 8.30 p.m. On Wednesday, April 6th, come in for our weekly trivia tournament at 9 o'clock p.m. Please register your team by 8.30 in order to challenge your peers. And while you're here, sample some in-house appetizers for all participants. On Thursday, April 7th, comes Zone Late Night. It's guitar night from 10 p.m. to 1 a.m. On Friday, April 8th, it's Friday Nights at the Zone Choir Night. Come out from 8 to 11 p.m. and sing with the Kirkpatrick Choir. For more information about this and other events, go to zone.ruckers.edu. That's all for this week's edition of The Core News. We will be back next Friday at 7 p.m. right here on 90.3 The Core. Or, if you missed any portion of tonight's broadcast, 
you can relive it in its full glory on the internet. That's right, you can download the podcast at thecore.fm. If you'd like to contact The Core News, tell us how much you like our podcast, suggest a news story, ask a question, heck, maybe even join The Core News team yourself. Well, then you can drop us some email. Send that to news at thecore.fm. The Core News has been brought to you by Amy Bronstein, Sarah Morrison, Yashwanth Manjanath, Nana, Justin Magic, DJ Calamari, The Sherman Tank, Stephen Yenick, and Mindy Hoffman. You've been listening to the news on 90.3 The Core. Stay tuned because the awesome music of Sounds Inflicted is coming up at 8. This is 90.3 The Core.